According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn your Bibles as we get started this morning to Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We are ready to begin a new episode in the last Judean and Perean ministries. The last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, episode number seven, the service of the seventy. And uh, it's been three weeks since we've been here in class, so we've had a little bit of a break. Good to be back, good to be in town, good to be awake. All those other uh, neat adjustments that happen when you cross 14 time zones and you try to figure out what time of day it is or what day it is, things like that. Real quickly here before we open in prayer and get started, I thought I'd just bring this to your attention. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for a while. Uh, having just, we've been in John now for some time between chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. We've covered about the first half of John chapter 10 with the Good Shepherd message there. We've gone down through verse 21 in, in John chapter 10. But between verse 21 and verse 22 of John chapter 10 comes a whole chunk from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so a number of these episodes, in fact, taking us down through episode 17. So 11 episodes starting this morning with episode 7, the service of the 70, and taking us down through uh, Mary and Martha and the, uh, the Good Samaritan story and all kinds of things we've got coming up, the, the barren fig tree, the crippled woman, uh, the mustard seed and the leaven, all of that comes up in the Gospel of Luke and... Uh, that's what we're dealing with starting today. So I thought I'd just throw that up there and give you an idea for uh, how this looks when you harmonize four different gospel accounts and you, you have a blend in, in most respects, but occasionally you come across a significant chunk. And this is uh, one that's noteworthy to Luke. You will also notice that in all these events, all 11 of them are exclusive to Luke. When we talk about the service of the 70, you're not going to find that in Matthew or Mark or John. It's exclusive to Luke. Same thing with the prodigal son. Same thing with uh, these other episodes that we have coming up. They are limited to Luke's account in the gospel record. All right. So that being said, if you want to hire an elf, I know where to do it. Elf for hire. That's right. My favorite sign I saw in the Philippines. I just had to, had to get a picture of it. All right. Let's start with a word of prayer. Make sure we are indeed in fellowship, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you this morning once again for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank you for the grace that uh, is so abundant. We don't deserve to be here, Father. Uh, we have no entitlement or right to uh, understand your thinking or your ways. And yet, by grace, Father, you have placed us in Christ, your beloved Son, with whom you're well pleased. You're delighted, Father, to uh, reveal yourself in, a, in the most intimate of fashions with your Son. And we thank you that that extends to us as well as you guide us in the truth and you uh, build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man. So, Father, this morning, as the Word of God goes forth once again, we do claim the promise that it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you set it. And we thank you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, I went to the desktop so I could find my slideshow. There it is. All right, this is a famous event called the Service of the Seventy, or quite possibly the Seventy-Two. We'll discuss, there's a text variant in this text, and uh, we will examine that as a part of our study here this morning. It consists of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, pretty lengthy section, but I will, uh, we're going to break it down into different chunks, and uh, you'll see how that breakdown comes here in a moment. We will start our reading, however, and we'll just begin with verse 1 and take it down through, oh, Verse 12, I would expect. All right. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, or possibly 72, depending on which uh, Bible version you're reading and what they put in the text and what they put in the footnote. And sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Then he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is such a well-known verse, and it's one that we quote frequently. It's one that we think of often uh, for both missionary applications, evangelism applications, responsibilities we have to proclaim Christ in, in this lost and dying world. This is a verse that gets quoted again and again and again, that the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And I think it gets quoted, particularly in a church age application, it gets quoted yet without an understanding of its context. What does it mean that the harvest is plentiful? And if we understand the context and we understand the scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ at this point, I think we would have a better handle on it and we'd be uh, maybe more reluctant to make immediate church age application. In other words, when we're done with a study, I'm going to throw a question out to you and ask, for us today in 2008 AD, United States of America, is it fair to say the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few? All right? And you say, well, of course it is. You're out of your mind. You're a heretic. Why would the harvest not be plentiful? Well, the harvest... I won't give it away, but um, think about it. Chew on it between now and the time we finish the study to understand the scope of the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Go, in verse 3. Go, and that is an imperative. Uh, often it's confused with the, pat the Great Commission where go is not an imperative, but here it is. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one in the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. All right, that gets us through half of the text. That's down through verse 12. Uh, there are other things that follow in verses 13 and following, and we'll, uh, we'll address those momentarily. All right, so this is the service of the 70, or otherwise known as the 72, and that's what we want to look at in point one. We've got five issues of study we're going to glean out of this chapter. 
or out of this half of this chapter. We have the Good Samaritan in 25 through 37. We got Mary and Martha in 38 through 42. So we've got other things in chapter 10 besides the service of the 70. Now, point one then. In a, fa- in a similar fashion as the 12, the 70 are sent forth two by two. And we're going to do some relationship between chapter 10 and chapter 9. We've been so long from the Gospel of Luke that we maybe lose sight of how close these are. When he commissions his 12 and sends them forth, the, the uh, dodecapostolog we studied back in chapter 12, the list, or chapter 9, the listing of the 12 apostles is uh, is there, just one chapter prior to this. They come in back-to-back chapters as far as Luke's record is concerned. So hold your finger there and flip back a page or a couple pages and look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And you're going to notice some similarities. You may also spot some differences. There are more similarities than differences, however. The 70 are sent forth two by two. Reading from Luke 9 now, he called the twelve, Hoidotica, the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. We're going to discuss this as one of the distinctions between these episodes because with the twelve, he gives them their authority up front and then after that training and preparation, he sends them out. A little bit different order with the seventy. He's going to send them out. It's not until they come back or while they're gone that they actually discover the power they have over the demons. And uh, it's something that they celebrate as, uh, well, well, we'll deal with that. But they celebrate it as if that was the point for sending them out, which it wasn't. And that's what uh, we'll discuss when we uh, try to break down uh, what happens when believers don't understand why they've been sent. All right, so the... Twelve are sent forth, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off from your feet as a testimony against them. And so departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing Everywhere. So that's the ministry of the twelve. Now, when we get to chapter 10, we find the ministry of the 70. So there are a similar fashion between the 12 and the 70. One distinction and why I kind of included Mark 6, 7 as well is because that's the verse that actually pinpoints the uh, 12 being sent two by two. In Luke 9, we don't have a reference of the 12 being sent out in pairs. We just have the reference that the 12 are sent out. We know they're sent out in pairs because of the parallel in Mark 6. If you want more study on that, you can go back in your notes. It was Galilean Ministry, episode number 34. And if you have that available in your notes, uh, back in episode 34 of the Galilean Ministry, the 12 sent out. That was some time ago, though, because um, there were 56 events in the Galilean Ministry. So um, event number 34 was some time back. All right. Now, we do have a text criticism issue regarding the number of these disciples. And whether it's 70 or 72, depending on what English text you're reading, uh, you might have either of those numbers there, and then you may have the alternate in a footnote 
of some sort. Some Bibles are real good with footnotes. Others are not so good with footnotes. Uh, others just give you their opinion without bothering to tell you that there is a difference of opinion in this particular text. Um, so let's look at it. I, I kind of like doing this in simple things. Uh, we can look at manuscripts and we can talk about different issues with things like this. Was it 70 or was it 72? You know, were there 35 pairings or were there 36 pairings? You know, as he sent them out. And you say, well, does it really matter? Yes, of course it matters because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. We're accountable to make application for that which has been revealed. Now, to be honest, we're going to make the same application whether it was 70 or 72. It's not going to modify our application. But there are still significant uh, aspects that we should look at in breaking it down. We want to be careful with every passage of scripture. But I like using these. I like using uh, spelling matters like the, the Pool of Bethesda. Or was that the pool of Bethzatha? Or maybe it was the pool of Bethsaida? Okay. Uh, whatever pool that was that the, the guy had been laying there for all those years. Um, it's a spelling question. And the manuscripts re- reflect the different spelling traditions and, and uh, so forth. Uh, here it's, an, it's a number issue. In which case the number 70 appears in every manuscript. But the number 2, the duo, is missing in some of the manuscripts. And so we can look at it. I'll just put them up here for you. The evidence for 72 and the evidence for 70 um, is pretty even. It's pretty well even between the two different options. And uh, it's not one of a particularly early date versus a late date. It's not one that uh, particularly pits uh, Alexandrian text uh, versus Byzantine text or versus Caesarian text or versus Western text. Uh, you have basically four different families of manuscripts and the evidence is split between those four different families. Uh, so you don't have the early versus late issue that sometimes helps to sort things out. Um, you don't have um, some of the, the geographic issues that sometimes helps to sort things out. And yet... Here they are. Now, I'll go ahead and explain some of these. First of all, the early papyri, which are the earliest ones we have, uh, include papyri 75 right here. And papyri 75, this is the earliest of any of the manuscripts you see anywhere on this board, uh, second, uh, second century, early third century in its, uh, in its date. And it supports the reading of 72. It has the duo in addition to the, uh, the hebdikonta, the, the, the number 70. Um, so that's the earliest testimony that we have. And it is an Alexandrian text. Likewise, so is Codex Vaticanus right here. It's an Alexandrian text. So you have Alexandrian support for it, but you also have Alexandrian support against it. Because Sinaiticus is, is Alexandrian and Alexandrinus right there is also Alexandrian. So you can't take a particular region and say, see, this supports one reading versus another reading. Uh, the, the dominant Byzantine tradition, the um, let me switch colors here, the majority text, for example, uh, supports the number 70, but that again reflects the late date, uh, the kind of the coalition and, and harmonization of the different manuscript traditions by the time you get to a Byzantine majority text. So if you're reading a uh, King James or a New King James Bible uh, that prefers the majority text or the Byzantine manuscripts, then chances are your Bible will list 70 there and not even mention the possibility of 72. If you're reading a New American Standard, it probably still says 70, but at least it indicates 72 in a, uh, in a footnote. 
if you're reading an NIV, then yours says 72 and uh, doesn't even mention the possibility of 70 in a, in a footnote or anywhere else. All right. Uh, other things here. Let me just run through some of these other manuscripts. The, uh, the Latin. These are the pre-Vulgate Latin manuscripts. Before Jerome coalesced the different Latin traditions into the Latin Vulgate, you had a lot of uh, pre-Vulgate Latin manuscripts, and they all were unanimous in agreement with the number 72, as were the early Syriac. You got four different flavors of Syriac. The early ones are in favor of the number 72. The later ones uh, revise that to 70. Likewise, the Boharic. Early Boharic has 72. Late Boharic has 70. Anyway, this kind of gives you the flavor. So which is it? Is it 72 or is it 70? All right. My opinion is it's 72. But we're going to find out when we get there, won't we? <laughs> as far as that goes. So that's the internal evidence. That's the, the, the manuscripts themselves from uh, not only the Greek manuscripts, but the Latin, the Syriac, the Coptic, and, uh, and so forth. The uh, external evidence, or what you do when you apply, when you realize that, well, one was original, and then it got changed to the other one. See, what's more likely? That in a manuscript originally said 70, and a scribe said, no, I think that's wrong, let's, let's make that 72. Or, the manuscript originally said 72, and a scribe, when he was copying it, said, no, 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 that can't be right, we'll make that 70. Okay, And that's actually the, the natural transition, because there were so many 70s in the Bible. There's 70 uh, elders to the nation of Israel, there's 70 uh, divisions of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes broken down into 70 uh, clans. There, uh, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 broke down the Gentile nations into 70 uh, different nations. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew text of Genesis 10, even there is a question between 70 and 72. And uh, it's, this, is a, this, this pairing between the number 70 and 72 comes up in a lot of different places. For example, the Septuagint. Do you know how many scholars were, uh, were involved in the translation of the Septuagint into, from Hebrew into Greek? That's why it's called the Septuagint, right? It's 70. However, there are significant traditions that actually say, no, technically, there were 72. There were 72 scholars involved in the translation of the Septuagint. So this dichotomy between 70 and 72 is quite interesting. And it happens here as well. A lot of attention gets focused, well, why did the Lord send out 70? What was the impact on 70? Why not 40? Why not 60? Why not 100? What was the impact on 70? Likewise, why did he have 12 apostles, 12 disciples that he called also to be apostles? See, We do know the 12, in addition to their church age responsibilities, actually have uh, responsibilities to the nation of Israel in their stewardship, because they are the apostles that were apostles before the church began. They were apostles before the church age spiritual gift of apostle was given. 
Paul and Barnabas and James and these other apostles, uh, they were church-age apostles, but they were not apostles in the dispensation of Israel like Peter, Andrew, James, and John and these twelve are. And we do know that he selected twelve, and particularly they will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is a feature of the twelve. And so then we have the question, well, what is the feature of the 70 or the 72? What will their role be as uh, as it goes forth? And, and to be honest, we don't know because we don't have the Lord giving a prophetic message telling the 72, behold, you will sit on 72 thrones judging. That thing's flickering in, isn't it? All right. It didn't do it for you Sunday night, though. I think it's my doc. Okay. Um we don't know, but it's speculated that they do relate to the table of nations, that they will be the disciples that will have administrative oversight of the 70 nations or the 72 nations of the Gentiles in uh, the millennial kingdom. Don't know that because the Lord never preached that, but there's a lot of speculation on that nonetheless. All right, so we have the different manuscripts pretty well evenly divided, and uh, this is why in the uh, the United Bible Society's committee, that votes on which one to print in their Greek New Testaments, uh, they have to select to print one in the New Testament and put the other one in the footnote. And uh, they selected to put 70 in the manuscript, but 72 in the footnote. And yet they gave it a C rating. They rate everything either A, B, or C. And uh, the A rating is the one that they have absolute confidence in. The B, they've got most confidence in. And the C flip a coin <laughs> with a C it could go either way and they're pretty well divided even amongst the committee members that uh, that vote on that all right my personal belief though is 72 and I'm going to be referring to them as such in uh, the subsequent points but what are these 70 guys or 72 guys supposed to be doing well he appointed 70 others or 72 Others, and others mean that they're not including the twelve amongst this group. These are disciples above and beyond the twelve. How many were there? Hundreds, thousands. We don't know the total number. We know that there were 5,000 when he fed them that day, or 4,000 when he fed them on that other occasion. Uh, we have one little clue. If you uh, join me in Acts chapter 1, with a selection here of... Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot. We find out that. Oops. It would help if I turn to the right chapter. Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren in Acts 1:15, a gathering of about 120 persons. And uh, this is immediately after the ascension. These are followers of Christ. The church has not yet started. These are disciples of Jesus Christ in the dispensation of Israel. It includes the twelve, but it also includes the brothers of the Lord. It also includes his mother and so forth. And uh, there's 120 of them all together. So that's the twelve, four brothers, a mother. And uh, you still only have 17 at that point. So there's 103 beyond that. And Peter stands up and says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. 
And then it uh, goes on to quote uh, the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no man dwell in it, let another man take his office. Right? I think that's from Psalm 109 or Psalm 108 verse 9 or 109 verse 8, something like that. And uh, and so the replacement for Judas, the, ne- the necessity of having a twelfth seat, a twelfth apostle of the Lamb, and a, a dispensation of Israel apostle is critical. Peter realizes that they need to have a twelfth apostle before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit descends, before the church begins. They need to have this uh, office filled uh, for uh, the millennial fulfillment that's going to come. And so he says it's necessary that of the men, sorry ladies, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. See, in order to be an apostle of the Lamb, it was necessary to be an eyewitness of everything from baptism to resurrection. To be a church age apostle was necessary to be a witness of the resurrection. But to be an apostle of the Lamb, baptism through resurrection and everything in between. So they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. There were men beyond that, but these were two out of the ones that qualified being uh, companions from beginning to end. Both of these men, by the way, we'll see at the end of the study, both of these men are... Uh, by church tradition, they are included among the 70. That uh, The church traditions hold that both of these men were featured in Luke chapter 10 when he sent 70 of them forth, or 72 of them forth, two by two, that uh, this was the first pairing of the, of the 70 or the 72 that went forth. So they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry and apostleship. That's the office of apostle. From which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the eleven apostles. In fact, after this verse, they are never again referred to as the eleven. They are the twelve for the remainder of the book of Acts. All right. But that just gives you the idea that there were other disciples beyond the twelve, and that there were hundreds of them. Uh, and so when he selects 72 of them now to go forth into all the cities, um, we have the idea who some of these guys might be. Clearly those two, and then perhaps some others here as well, and we'll talk about the different traditions here at the end of the study. So, now, he's left Galilee, He's uh, passing through the Samaritan regions where they wanted to call down fire and things like that. And he's headed into Judea. He's going to be crossing over the Jordan River into the Perean side. We'll look at the uh, the, uh, geography here in a little bit. Um, and, And the geography is important because when he sends them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. This is anticipation. Every place where he was going to come. And we're going to ask ourselves some questions in this. Um, did he actually make it to all 35 cities or all 36 cities in the final year before the cross? Uh, were there some cities that he didn't make, but he sent his messengers anyway, as far as that goes? It seemed to be that in the Galilean ministry, uh, he was sending people ahead of him. You'll note at the end of chapter 9, he's sending people ahead of him, uh, like in 9... 51, he's 
determined to go to Jerusalem and he sends messengers ahead of him. They went into the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And uh, they didn't receive them and so they want to call down fire and things like that. Is he sending these 72 guys forth just simply to make travel arrangements? Is that the whole point? He's sending out 36 teams of disciples to go make travel arrangements in all these different towns? Well, no, they're doing a lot more than that. They actually have a preaching responsibility when they get there. They have a ministry opportunity when they get there with the recognition of the, har- of the plentiful harvest. And uh, in fact, they are the recruiting drive in all these different cities that they're going through, praying that the Father will give workers, laborers, and uh, they're going to be the training officers in these cities when they, when they arrive. So every place where he himself was going to come. All right, their mission, point B, sub-point B now. Their mission begins with a full harvest identification and fervent prayer. Their mission begins with a full harvest identification. That is, the harvest is plentiful. And he identified that and notified them of it. Their mission begins with a full harvest identification and fervent prayer. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers and do his harvest. See, he's talking to the 70. He's talking to the 72. Some people think that they are the workers. I believe that they are in addition to the 72. That he is commanding the 72 to make a matter of fervent prayer for God the Father to give the 72 workers that they can work with. Because he doesn't say, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send you guys out. He's sending them out. He's already sending them out. They are sent ones. But they're praying for more sent ones, more individuals to send. So it begins with a full harvest identification. Now, what is this full harvest identification? Recognizing the nearness of the kingdom. Recognizing the urgency of the adversary to lay hands on him. He's tried multiple times at this Feast of Tabernacles. He's tried even more. Remember in John chapter 7, he went up to that Feast of Tabernacles and they tried to lay hold on him, but he escaped from their grasp. Um, He has to survive these last six months to get to the cross. He is the Lamb of God that is to be sacrificed on Nisan 14 and not one day sooner. And so it may be, I'm thinking just tactically here, some of my police officer work in the past and that, you just, you want to confuse the adversary into where you're going next? Send out 36 teams. (laughs) You know, don't just send out a single team. Go prepare a place for me here in the Samaritan town. Send out 36 teams into all these different places, and then we'll go in whatever order the Father determines, and, and you won't know till I get there that yours is the place I'm going to next. And in the meantime, keep beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send you workers, because the harvest is plentiful. They can have training ministry, they can have evangelism opportunities, and everything else while they're waiting for Jesus to arrive at their particular location. So the full harvest identification, again, context for this. The crucifixion is approaching. The final days for Jesus Christ to have this witness and testimony before his work on the cross. The final days for humanity 
who have been waiting ever since the seed of the woman promised for the coming Messiah. And this is their final opportunity to identify with the coming Messiah prior to the work on the cross. That's the uh, context for the full harvest, for the harvest is plentiful. All right. Now, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. He's not talking about himself. He's not talking about himself there. Prayer is addressed to the Father. This is God the Father. God the Father is the one that's in charge. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus Christ is a part of that harvest. He's the first fruits. He's the he's the the uh, firstborn of many brethren. He's a part of the Father's full harvest, but it's the Father's harvest that's uh, that's being emphasized here. And in continue, beseeching the Lord, there's a continuous action on this prayer item, beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. In other words, for you to be the sending one of the laborers, the workers that he, the Father gives to you. Remember, who are the disciples? The disciples were the workers that the Father had given to Jesus, right? Remember that? John 17, that uh, the ones you have given me, I've not lost even one of them, okay? And so what he's telling the 70 here is that the Father will give them workers as well for their assignment, for the cities where he's sending them, for their particular mission field. See, this is where Jesus had 12 and he had 70, and and they're supposed to have their disciples now, training their workers to go out into this full harvest, particularly here in these next six months before the, uh, the crucifixion actually takes place. And again, with the nearness of it, who's to say, in, in, uh, without omniscience at work, without knowing about the national rejection of Christ, who's to say that in these six months there may be a national humbling, a national repentance, that they may uh, heed the ministry of these 70 and however many they train, and that the nation of Israel may accept their king. Okay? Now, we don't, that obviously isn't what happens. We know that now with our hindsight, that he went to the cross, was rejected by his brethren, and accomplished our redemption and so forth. But don't use your hindsight to affect what they were thinking in Luke chapter 10. As they saw the plentiful harvest, as they started to see um, positive volition for the sake of the gospel itself and not simply as a political movement to throw off the bonds of Rome. So, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. We could rephrase that today. Pray to God the Father to send seminary students that will train in your training ministry So that having been trained in your training ministry, we have just multiplied the number of workers out there in the harvest field. We want to give it our application for Austin Bible Church today. Also, point C, their mission recognized angelic conflict difficulties. The wolves of verse 3. If you get involved in a training ministry, you're going to attract the adversary. The adversary does not want workers trained. The adversary, by the way, uh, would much rather go get a seminary student derailed uh, while he's still in training, before he's fully trained, before he's fully prepared, before he's uh, equipped 
and uh, before he's prepared to deal with it. That's why uh, the warnings are there in First Timothy not to lay hand on a man too hastily, uh, not to uh, promote too early. There are issues of pride. There are snares of the devil that have to be uh, safeguarded against. They have to be prepared for. They have to be trained. And uh, a young man preparing to use his gift is very vulnerable. So uh, no wonder when he says here in verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, that there will be conflict. That's why they got to stay in prayer. That's why they have to constantly be intimate with the Father during this entire process. Um, just remember the context for verse 3. Being in the midst of wolves doesn't come simply by being believers in a world full of unbelievers. It, it comes by being believers in a training ministry to other believers in the midst of a world of unbelievers. That's an important context. So their mission recognized angelic conflict difficulties. That's why we're in such prayer for the training ministry they're starting now in the Philippines. This um, three, they've got three campuses and they're going to run them all simultaneously. And uh, they're going to bring in the different pastors. They're going to rotate from one to the next to the next. And uh, Ralph LaRosa and Leo and uh, Pastor Leo and Pastor Romeo, those three are heading this up. And they're, the three of them are going to teach at each training center in turn and train these uh, these untrained and undertrained native pastors that they uh that the lord has brought to their uh, to their influence all right but they're going to have some conflict and they know that they've already seen that so uh just understand that goes with the territory don't allow it to derail what you're supposed to be doing because if god has directed you to take through a, a particular course of action then he'll be there with you even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death uh, the lord will indeed be with you and uh, see you through each step of the way. Point D. Their mission relied on grace, hospitality, support. In verses 4 through 7. Their mission relied on grace, hospitality, support. In many respects, it was identical to the grace support that sustained Jesus in his ministry. With the, uh, the various leading women and others that contributed out of their own private means, it was a grace, hospitality ministry. It was interesting because here's Jesus in the dispensation of Israel, and yet their mechanism for uh, financial matters in the spiritual realm was the tithing that went to the temple. They went to the priesthood and the Levites, and by this time, a completely corrupted institution of the temple in Jerusalem that was so perverted through political influences and intrigues and organized crime and all the rest that uh, it wasn't even recognizable. And when Jesus saw the money changers and the other uh, situations going on there, he just he went berserk. Um, but Jesus' ministry was something else. Not supported by the tithe of the law, but supported by grace and the motivation, positive uh, volition of believers that recognize the Father's hand of blessing and desired in their own free will, desired in their own appreciation to support out of their private means. And that's what uh, he trained these men to do as well. So carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. You offer the the uh, the benediction. This is a grace greeting. 
And if indeed someone there has the capacity to respond in grace and peace, then that's the Father's provision for you. If they don't have the capacity, if not, it returns to you. In other words, if not, then you realize you're not face-to-face with a grace-oriented believer. That's not the Father's work assignment. That's not the one that the Father has designated to support your, your particular ministry. Stay in that house. Stay in that house. In other words, for the duration of your ministry in that location. So you've got 72 disciples, 36 pairs, and they're being sent now to 36 towns, cities, villages, what have you, throughout this region, Samaria, uh, Judea, Perea, this region where he's ministering between now and the crucifixion. And uh, undoubtedly, every town that he went to, these, he had this team in place. He had grace-oriented believers in place to help when he and the twelve arrived. Now, stay in that house. That's a long-term stay. They're not to float from place to place. They're not to uh, feel guilty about, man, we've been here a month already. We've been here two months already. We're wearing out our welcome. No, this is a, a six-month residency. Um, And they're to stay there long term. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't feel as if uh, you're unworthy of the grace support because the truth is you are unworthy of the grace support. (laughs) All right. And uh, the moment your sense of undeservedness starts to create a guilt, then you've lost your grace orientation. Uh, your undeservedness should always be manifest, not as a guilt factor, but as an appreciation factor for the fact that God is a God of grace. And uh, you have to learn to extend grace. All believers need to learn to extend grace. Um, ministers have a hard time sometimes, though, receiving grace. Uh, they've spent years and years extending grace, and then uh, in the fulfillment of their ministry, when other believers are providing grace their direction, that becomes a whole other test on its own. And um, becomes a, an opportunity then, and the the laborer worthy of his wages, not because he's he's worthy, but because the Lord's worthy through the the labor that he's doing there. So the laborer is worthy of his wages. By the way, this is what gets quoted by the Apostle Paul when he's talking about that in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians and First Timothy chapter five and other passages we look at when we talk about the grace support for pastors and missionaries, evangelists, and all the rest. The, uh, you do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul is citing Luke in that. So we understand uh, it's, it's testimony for um, Luke, the gospel records, as being uh, God-breathed and inspired as well for those who might doubt it. All right. I don't think anyone here doubts that Luke belongs in the Bible, but um, there are skeptics out there that would try to dismiss portions of the Bible and say, oh, well, God didn't write that. Well, yes, he did. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And the writings of Paul are called Scripture. And the writing here in Luke is called Scripture. All right. Interestingly enough, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, uh, a lot of these would have been Gentile cities. There were a lot of Gentile cities, uh, Greek cities, Roman cities, non-Jewish inhabitants of the region here that uh, were settled by the Persians, that were settled later on by the Greeks, uh, and then ultimately they've been settled by the Romans. And so 
there were cities like Sepphoris, which were almost entirely Roman, Latin, in their uh, population, or Greek-speaking in their population. Uh, there was a region of ten cities called uh, the Pentapolis, uh, or, or five cities called the Pentapolis, and then ten cities called Decapolis, and so forth. And they were primarily Gentile territories. Not uh, Jewish. I think we lose sight of that because we're uh, we're focusing on Galilee and Samaria. And we think, okay, there's a whole bunch of Jews living there. Yes, but there are also Gentile cities there as well. So their mission relied on grace, hospitality, support. Point E. Their mission featured grace, dietary, liberty. Their mission featured grace, dietary, liberty. You know, if Peter could have been in this team, it would have really helped him by the time he got to Acts chapter 10. But he still had, that's right, he still had the hang-up eating with the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. Well, it's because he was of the 12 and not of the 72, where he would have had a chance to be sent off into some Gentile cities and uh, to eat some things that would not have been kosher, would not have been featured in a Jewish city, for example could have gone to a place like Gerasene where they were keeping uh, uh, herds of swine. And uh, you know that wasn't a Jewish uh, context there because they wouldn't have been keeping the swine. Grace, dietary, liberty. We experience a lot of this on missionary journeys. And uh, we're thankful to be back in the land where we don't have to ask what things are before we risk whether we're going to eat them or not. And even after you're told what it is, you look at it and you think, no, that's not what that is, right? You're lying to me. That's <laughs> you're telling me this is that, but I'm skeptical, right? Just color me skeptical. We had, um, well, we'll give a full report on this, but we had the um, different menu items and things that we tried and things that we didn't try. And the, the funniest one was the uh, sizzling squid balls. And we said, um, no, we're... <laughs> We're not going to try the, the sizzling squid balls. <sighs> Made us laugh, though. We had a good laugh with the waitress over that one. But, all right. Fortunately, we were not of the 72 under the obedience to Jesus Christ, uh, where uh, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. We, uh, we actually had options in some respects to uh, pick and choose what we were going to eat. But the grace, the grace here in recognizing that some of these teams were actually going to Gentile locations. Uh, remember in the mystery of godliness, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Early on, when he sends out the twelve, he tells them the twelve specifically only go to the lost sheep of Israel. But to the seventy, he's not telling them that. To the seventy, he's not saying, limit your ministry to Israel alone. And the indications are that they were sent to Gentile locations also. So that when the crucifixion does take place, his uh, death warrant that's nailed to the cross over his head is written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And that's, uh, in my mind, significant. The mystery of godliness states that he was proclaimed among the nations. And that uh, would again be a reflection of the ministry of the Semite here in the final six months of his life before the cross. So the uh, grace, dietary, liberty, this is what's going to come up in, uh, in the early church age where they had to, uh, where Paul says, you know, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to the Gentiles I became as a Gentile. You don't want to be a stumbling block. You don't want to be, uh, you want to have a witness to those that you are proclaiming the word of God to. All right, point F. 
Their mission featured kingdom signs and wonders. Their mission featured kingdom, that's kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God on earth. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom signs and wonders. Heal those who are, in, who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God, notice now, has come near to you. Similar to what John the Baptist used to always say, the kingdom of heaven is near, is near. Jesus used to say the kingdom of heaven is near. But now we have a, an aspect where it has come near as a past completed action with present ongoing results and maybe even a pending realization or a pending rejection. It has come near. This is the final call. This is the final opportunity for repentance. That if response is not recognized, then the king will in fact be departing. And that the, uh, the rejection of the kingdom at this point is, uh, this is a final call, in other words. We'll have more to say on that when we approach the cross itself. Kingdom signs and wonders. So keep this in your thinking between this week and next week when we come back to this study. When you're trying to evaluate whether as church age believers we can make claim to the harvest is plentiful principle. Uh, can we make claim to the harvest is plentiful principle? Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Can we fully embrace that if, in fact, the context is different from our own context? If the setting is different from our own setting? In other words, if we are not prepared to, uh, if we're not featuring kingdom signs and wonders, what are we doing in our own stewardship? And uh, are we preaching the kingdom? Are we bringing in the kingdom? Or are we preaching the remnant until such time as the king comes in his glory? And I think this is the biggest item when we were talking on Sunday about different uh, snares when believers get involved in uh, political action, and they get involved in marches or causes or different things, um, that the snare that underlies that is that believers can actually um, become disillusioned and become misoriented into what they're doing and why they're doing it. See, uh, It's one thing to want to have a voice as a testimony, a salt and light, and a blessing to this world, uh, but it's something else if the goal is to change this world. And I think that's where believers get discouraged because they have it in their mind that we're making a difference, that we're, we're changing things, we're producing changes, see, which we're not. Uh, this world is progressing from bad to worse as, we're, as the darkness deepens and heads into the unrestrained evil of tribulation. And that's where it's headed. And I think believers that are trying to stop that, they're trying to stem the flow of that, we're trying to hold off on that. You want to know something? They're working opposite what God the Father is working. God the Father is bringing about the maximum glory for His Son, Jesus Christ, and that includes the apostasy of the end times, in which, when the Son of Man appears, will He find faith upon this earth? He will return at this maximum apostasy to rapture his saints out in an almost anonymous, unnoticed uh, little deal. So we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that some. The idea here about uh, healing and all this other impact and things, 
it will be a feature of Second Advent. There, the, it will be a feature of the 144,000. There will be true miracles and signs. The two witnesses are going to perform miracles, the likes of which haven't been seen since Moses and Elijah. And it will be so overwhelming that even the adversary will then start to motivate and empower his false signs and wonders and things. The, it'll be a massive feature of the tribulational age will be the, uh, the charismatic uh, excitement of, of things going on. All right. So let's again remind ourselves of uh, of our own stewardship and our own dispensation. Point G. Their mission featured a mixed acceptance and rejection. If uh, a city does not receive you, that's not your field. That's not your work assignment. Go out into its streets and say, and you and you depart. You go find another city. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Same grammar from verse 9. The kingdom of God has come near. And you blew it. You rejected it. You wanted no part of it. And they're accountable. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Okay. Now, this is part of what we're going to talk about next week when we address, well, why didn't Jesus Christ tell them which cities to go to? Why didn't Jesus tell them, go to cities A, B, C, and D. Uh, don't go to E and F. Go to G. Don't go to H. Go to I, J, and K. You know, He could have spelled out, uh, based on foreknowledge, uh, remember, in, in predestination and election and foreknowledge, God knows who chooses and who rejects. So he could have told, told the disciples which cities are going to accept and which cities are going to reject. But he doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he himself is not tapping into omniscience. Jesus Christ himself has laid aside his privileges. He's walking the walk that you and I walk. He's walking the day-by-day walk of faith and uh, do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Neither did he. Except for those moments where as a prophet, he was a prophet, priest, and king. There were occasions where as a prophet, he, uh, he was given a heads up on certain things. But on a, ma- a daily matter, on a normal routine matter, see, I don't think that prophets uh, had immediate uh, foreknowledge of everything that was going to happen tomorrow and so forth. Only those elements that pertain to the ministry uh, where the, the Spirit would come upon them and reveal particular things. So uh, they, had to, they had to enter into a city without knowing. Like when you give the gospel, you're not going to know if the person you're witnessing to is going to believe or laugh at you, reject it, call you stupid, or whatever else. So does that affect how you witness? Do you pick and choose who you give the gospel to based upon uh, your uh, hints about whether you think they're going to believe it or not? No, we should be uh, ready to give an account to any who might ask. And that's, uh, that's a clue right there. So we'll talk about this more. I just want to give you some things to think about between this week and next in that he does not tell them which cities will respond positively and which cities will respond negatively. It's like he sent uh, Jonah to Nineveh. He knew that the city would respond positively. Jonah didn't know that, and it kind of upset him. He tried to say, well, I knew this ahead of time, but that's just a human being trying to be, and I told you so. But then, 150 years later, he sends, he sends Nahum 
to Nineveh, even though he knew Nineveh would not accept. So why did he bother sending him? If he, if he in his foreknowledge, he knows that they're not going to, they're not going to repent. See, this is where we, as humans, try to uh, relax and try to understand there is such a thing as predestination, election, foreknowledge on this side of the equation. But then, in time, for human beings, there is volition, acceptance, rejection, and accountability. Accountability. We reap what we sow. And so both are true on God's end, on man's end. And we want to see both sides of the picture here that, so that Christ receives the glory. So um, they are going city by city, proclaiming the kingdom and uh, remaining when the message is responded to, remaining when the father answers the prayer and gives them workers, gives them a training opportunity in that city, and then... Um, departing when uh, the Father does not answer, when the volition is negative, dusting the, their feet off and moving on to the next location. We'll talk about that because we have the same woe is Chorazin, woe is Bethsaida message here that Jesus himself gave back in, John, in Matthew chapter 11. Now, the 70 get to give the same message themselves when, uh, when they're ministering in these locations. All right. So this uh, kind of outlines their mission. This is what they're doing, where they're doing it, why they're doing it, and all the rest. When we look at point two next week, the 72 are to deliver the Lord's woe messages. This woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, it's a repeat of what he taught when he taught in Matthew chapter 11, but now it gets to be their message. Now they get to proclaim the woes in the places where they're dusting off their feet and walking out. They get to proclaim the woes to uh, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida in these cities here. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that next week. We'll talk about volition. We'll talk about sovereignty and, uh, and then the issues. When they come back in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy. They come back excited. Notice what they don't come back saying. Father, you gave us workers that we have to train now to send them forth. They don't come back saying, Lord, we have believers now in Jesus Christ unto eternal life. No, they say, Lord, we have power over demons. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're excited about power over demons. They're not excited about workers unto the harvest that the Father has provided for them. Because let me tell you, when uh, <laughs> when the Lord gives you workers to be trained, when God gives you harvest workers in need of training and he puts you in a position of a training ministry, you just magnified your workload a hundred times over. <laughs> All right? And so, uh, they're, no, they're not rejoicing over that. They're happy, though, they got power over demons. And uh, the Lord says, you know what? That's not something to be happy about. We'll talk about that also. So we've covered point one. Like I say, there's five points of study altogether. We've got a good start on it. One week from today, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll come back and look at some more of these verses. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you that you, in your perfection, put forth a perfect plan. You bring about perfect results, even though you make use of such imperfect people. Father, we thank you for the, the glories of your, of your majesty as displayed in the 72, as displayed in the 12, as displayed in Jesus Christ himself, and, and particularly on this day, as displayed in each one of us day by day and with each passing moment. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.